Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I just wanted to start by just uh, saying thank you. So yeah, just thank you on behalf of my wife and myself and to every tribe for your partnership in the gospel. And just wanted to say thank you for, uh, also for the First Nation people in uh, northwestern Ontario, the Ojibwe, uh, the Cree and the Oji Cree people. And um, yeah, just thank you for your prayers and your um, your financial support and making it possible for us to be there. And so it's just, um, yeah, humbling. Um, there's times where you're just on, on the field and you feel alone, and then you just remember that there's so many people behind you, and that's just a, a very comforting and humbling uh, uh, reminder and just a reality that you don't, you're not always thinking of. And so, so thank you. Um, and, yeah, we just... Just continue to cover your prayers um, going forward, too. So I'm going to just start out by praying here, and then I'll, I'll get going. So um, Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you that your word is um, a light unto our feet. Um, Lord, that you are guiding us as we walk through this life. And Lord, we are grateful that your word doesn't go out void, but it accomplishes, Lord, what you've sent it forth to do. And we ask that this morning, that your word would accomplish your work and your people. Um, Father, and pray that, and just agree that it wouldn't go out void, um, but it would bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of those that you've placed us around to be faithful witnesses uh, to your glory and goodness. And just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at um, 1 Samuel 25 this morning, um, and this is one of my favorite Old Testament passages, and actually it kind of maybe appears a little odd as uh, uh, Jason was up here reading this morning, kind of like leaves you at a little bit of a cliff, cliffhanger here, right? David's telling his 400 men, like, strap on your swords, and so... We start this story with a dilemma, right? It seems like a bunch of people are going to die. And so it leaves us with kind of a cliffhanger. And it just made me think of maybe like your favorite book or TV show where you're watching an episode and they just kind of leave you hanging at the end. And you're like, okay, now I got to watch the next one or I got to read the next chapter. And so, so yeah, it seems like some bad stuff's about to go down, right? And, um, and so why is that? What's going on? In the story, we're 25 chapters into Samuel at this point, and so there's a lot of history, and 
Right now, Saul has, is pursuing David. He's chasing him with 3,000 chosen men. And David has about 600, so they're, they're outnumbered. And they're hiding out in caves. And the chapter preceding this is the one where David, um, Saul's like, well, here he is, or David's men uh, tell David, hey, God's given Saul into your hands. Here he is. He came into the cave we're hiding in. And David uh, sneaks up, but he's not going to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He cuts off a corner of his, his garment. And then uh, when Saul leaves, he said, hey, Saul, you know, like check the corner of your garment. You know, look that I haven't, I haven't uh, you know, decided to do evil for, t- against you this day. And, um, and then Saul says this to David in chapter 24. He said to David, you are more righteous than me. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. And you have declared, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And so, the funny thing is. And in chapter 26, Saul tries to kill him again. <laughs> and so the problem with Saul is you can never believe anything that he says. And so, so David is, um, he's been harassed, right? He's been, Saul's made multiple attempts on David's life, throwing spears at him when he was singing for him. And, and now we see this event happened in all of Israel. Samuel's died, the last judge of Israel, who's an important figure in Israel. He's an important figure in Saul's life. He's an important figure in David's life. And it seems here that, that Saul has actually stopped pursuing David temporarily because they're going to mourn Samuel's passing. And so I'm just building the case here that David is, he's in a bit of a, like probably emotionally fragile state, right? Like Saul's been trying to kill him. Now Samuel's dead. The, the man who came and anointed David, the eighth son of Jesse, to be the next king of Israel because Saul was unfaithful. And so, so who, does Nabal, or who does David run into? Um, we see here in chapter 25 that um, David rose and he goes to the wilderness of Paran in verse 1 of chapter 25. And there's this man uh, who has a business in Carmel. He ha- he's very rich, right? They're going to be shearing their sheep. And um, his name is Nabal, and it says, um, now the name of the man in verse 3 was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And so, um, and so Nabal's name actually means fool. And it's thought that it's probably not his real name. It's probably like a surname or a nickname. It's kind of like his reputation in the community, and yet he has this wife who is discerning and beautiful. And so it reminds me of some uh, people that I've met, some marriages that I've seen. And so, so, and this is meant to be right away to draw a contrast, a contrast between Nabal and Abigail. And so, in fact, much of the book of Samuel, is a bo- it's a book of contrast. You have you have Samuel himself contrasted with Eli and his sons who are unfaithful in the ministry, and yet God's going to raise up a faithful priest. And so it's also a contrast between Saul and David 
Uh, Saul is fearful. He's rash, you know, quick to rush into doing something he's not supposed to, and he's disobedient. And he's constantly trying to save himself by his own hand. That's why he's going to kill David, because if he kills David, then he knows Jonathan, his son, will sit on the throne. And yet David is a contrast to Saul that he's courageous, and he's patiently enduring this persecution from Saul, and he's obedient, and he's trusting the Lord's timing. He's trusting the Lord to deliver the kingdom into his hand. He's not going to take that. He's not going to take it upon himself to make himself king. And so, and now we see Nabal here who's a fool and his wife is wise and discerning. So what does this fool Nabal do? David comes to him and he tells him, like, hey, look, I've been with your, he, he actually sends men because this is how you do it in the culture. You send uh, like an advocate or a, a mediator, which is real common in First Nation culture where we are too. In an honor-shame culture, you often work through someone else. It's a way to honor the person that you're, you're sending these ten, these 10 young men, these delegates to, and asking, you know, hey, like, because the sheep shearing time was a festive time in the community. It was a time of celebration. And so, and yet here's David and his, not just his men, there's 600 of them, two of them get left behind, but they have all their wives and children too. And he tells them, hey, go ask Nabal if he can spare us some some." Uh, sheep and some food and stuff so that we can celebrate too and and so and David basically says you know we've been protecting your shepherds and your flocks in the wilderness there's a real threat out there in fact five chapters from now when David and his men are attacking the city some raiders come and they actually take all of David and, and his men's wives they take all their possessions and they take off with them so this is a dangerous place and David says, look, I've been offering protection, you know, do me the honor of providing for our needs. And so, and so here David's been patient, patiently enduring Saul for years and years, and now he runs into this fool, and he, somebody he looked up to has just died, and now he, he's not taking it anymore. He's not going to take it. And so, and Nabal actually says... Um, he actually sliced David in a big way in chapter 25, verse 10. He says, And Nabal answered David's servant, saying, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I don't know where? Well, here's the problem. David right now in Israel is the most famous person in Israel. They, they wrote songs about him. Even their enemies knew those songs about David. Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his ten thousands. He's the, most, he's the most famous man. So it's not like this Nabal doesn't know who he is. In fact, Nalib, or Nabal is a Calebite. He's, a, he's from the tribe of Judah. And so here is David, who, being harassed and hiding in the wilderness, having lost somebody that he looked up to, goes to that which is his own, and his own receives him not. Nabal doesn't offer David the help that he is deserving of David's station as being the, the future and anointed king of Israel, right? He comes to his own countrymen, and he doesn't help him. In fact, he, he, he humiliates David. And so imagine, and this shows the real foolishness of Nabal, imagine the honor that David would have bestowed on Nabal for helping him. 
having the king, having the greatest man in Israel, the king seated in the place of honor at your table, at the head of your table. Like this guy, he's going to be the king. If he was a wise man, he would have said, all that I have is yours. And so the president of our ministry, Steve Lesson, he's, has this, he's, he uh, has this quote to help us think through going to a mission field, and he says, unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. And so David had this unrealistic expectation that he was going to go to Nabal, and Nabal was going to give him the honor that was due, due him as the future king of Israel and as a fellow member of the tribe of Judah. And yet that expectation isn't met. And so David, David's gonna, he's gonna take care of it. And so, and it's, and I think for ourselves, it's easy to be offended when we're hurting and others don't meet our expectations of caring, right? We're in a vulnerable place and we think, oh, surely this person's gonna care enough to listen or to help me. And possibly you, and it usually happens at the most inopportune time, right? You've had a hard day at work. You've recently lost someone that you loved. Um, your kids are, are just wearing out your patience. And you go to a friend or a family member just trying to spill out everything that you're going through, right? And they don't even, they don't listen to you. They don't give you the time a day. And then you, you're offended. You know, you're going to uh, defend your like, I need to defend my honor now because this person has it. They, don't, they haven't cared for me. And so, in this story, reminds me, and the reason I, lo- I like this story so much is that um, Nabal reminds me so much of Adam in that here's a rich man who, who has so much, many resources, and yet, um, yeah, I mean, God in Genesis 2 gives Adam and Eve the world and tells them to, to go forth and multiply and have dominion over it, right? But, but it's not enough for them. They want, they want to be God. And so, and so here, Nabal's not just going to get himself killed. He's going to get every male in his house is going to get killed because of his foolishness, right? And just like, just like, for us, Adam foolishly wanted more, and his foolishness has brought death upon all of us, right? And so Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so one fool can get a lot of people killed. And that's the, that's the dilemma that we see here in First um, Samuel 25, and then Paul also says in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And that's because of the consequence, the penalty of Adam's sin and the resulting uh, sin nature that all of us have because of our first father's foolishness. And so it reminds me of a story of that happened to me, I wanted to share this by um, just way of illustration that, um, yeah, growing up, I was, I grew up on a farm in Indiana and uh, uh, had two brothers and a sister. And um, yeah, 
yeah, my dad was uh, always kind of an angry guy. And I guess him and my mom never, that was always a point of contention in our family is kind of how they disciplined us. And it was very common for him to, um, you know, slap us upside the head or kick us, kick us in the butt. Like, even if it was something as small as like, oh, go find me a hammer and you can't find it, you know, that kind of thing. And so he was uh, kind of a scary, angry guy, you know, for being a little kid. And he was also very competitive, too. Like, he, um, his team played in the first team to make the semi-state uh, football uh, tournament. Like, and so I think... Yeah, he was always very competitive. So he was the kind of dad that would come to your game and, like, yell at all the umpires and, like, yell at uh, the other coach and uh, really helpful things like that. And, uh, and so one day, um, yeah, my mom would always make us ride home with him afterwards, and then it would always be, like, him telling us, like, things that we could do better or mistakes that were made. It was just, like, we always dreaded those drives, and the one day I just had enough of it, you know, it like it went on all the time and it was, it was my brother and I were riding with him and uh, I just, we were about a mile or two into the trip and I'm just like, I just lashed out at him. I just like stood up to him. It was like the first time I ever stood up to him. I was maybe like 14, 15 years old. And I said, uh, you know what, I'm sick of this. Like, like every, you know, we're out there trying hard all the time and we can't play for our whole team and you know we're just you know I'm just tired of this I'm not taking this anymore and I just kind of told him off and I can't remember everything that I said but he got pretty angry about that fortunately I, my brother was sitting between us but he's like you know what you can just get out and walk home and I was like all right and so I was about six seven miles from the house and I got out of the truck and my dad drove off and and, um, and, you know, there's a lot of things going on in my life at that time. You're kind of like junior high, high school. There's a lot of things, you know, you have things that you're dealing with at school, like bullies, like different things, all this stuff that a young person is trying to sort through. And, like, you know, you think that your parents going to be there for you, and it doesn't feel like they're on your team either, you know. And so I see similarities in this. You know, you have this expectation, like, this person going to help me, and they hurt you. And so... I actually ended up walking all the way home because my dad came and looked for me and I uh, hid from him because I just, and I think what happened that day is I kind of had determined in my heart like I was just like, he wasn't going to have control over my life anymore. And so, and I didn't really realize it at the time, but that kind of played into like maybe like three years of rebellion and just uh, partying and drug and alcohol use and things like that. But that was kind of the root that was when it started, right? Because there was some kind of bitterness that started in my heart. And so, so yeah. Um, so an application then, um, so we see the consequence of Nabal's actions and what it's going to bring on his house. And we see the consequence in our life through Adamson and what it's going to bring on our life. And so, so just like Nabal brought um, shame on David because of his foolishness, we've brought shame on a holy God through our sin. And unless we repent, we, we will die for our treason. And, and you might think, how can I say that? 
And, and so Nabal has defended, he offended somebody of greater honor than himself. And I would argue that we've offended someone of, that's much greater and much more honorable than David, right? We've, we've offended the God of angel armies who dwells in unapproachable light who spoke the world and the universe into existence, right? By his word. Who cast Satan and a third of his angels out of heaven, right? That's the God that we've offended, right? By our sin. And so we might look at this story and be like, David's a real fool, but we've done it too. And so... But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. We get to verse 14, and I'm going to read it here. And verse 25, verse 14, but, and that's a very important word, but. Somebody's going to do something here uh, to, to intervene in this situation. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. And they were a wall to us both by day and by night, all the, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all this house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seeds of parched grain and a and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on her donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And so Abigail intervenes in this situation, right? She, she was unaware of what Nabal had said, but when she finds out, she takes action. So how does she take action um, on behalf of not only her foolish husband, but everybody that's under the care of her house? The first thing that Abigail does is Abigail sends gifts ahead of her to propitiate David. She sends gifts. And I know that's a big word, but propitiation is just a gift that turns aside wrath. And so, and a good picture of this is when Jacob is going to finally meet Esau after stealing his birthright. After years and years and years, he sends all of his flocks and his herds and his concubines and wives in order of how much he likes them. You know, I put the, it was like concubine, the two concubines and then Leah and then finally Rachel. And then finally here's Jacob, right? He's walking at the very end of all this stuff. And when Esau gets to him, he's like, what do you, what do you mean by all this? And, and essentially um, what Jacob is saying is all this is yours. What I want is for things to be good between us again as brothers. And, and Esau's like, I don't need all that. Like, I, God has blessed me too. I'm so wealthy. Like, I'm just, I'm glad to see my brother. And so a good picture of propitiation is just, I love that. I mean, we can have our definitions, but to me, that story, it, that shows what it is. You know, he's sending all this, 
all these gifts ahead of him to turn aside his brother's wrath for stealing his birthright. And so how has Christ done that for us? In John 4.10, the Apostle John says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to be the gift that turns aside his wrath for our sins. And so, and Paul also, Paul says in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the form, human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Um, and so Christ, Christ's propitiation is his obedience to the point of death. He was faithful to God. He never sinned. He obeyed God even to the point of him going to the cross and dying for sins that he did not commit. Um, and, those, and that's what turned aside the wrath of God in our lives is that Christ was willing to be the gift, to be the one that was obedient to the Father in all things, even suffering humiliating death. In John chapter 21, verse 25, the apostle John writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what is Christ sent before us? His perfect obedience and all of his good works that if they were written about him, the world would not be able to contain the books of the good things that Christ has done. And so he has sent those on ahead of us to turn aside God's wrath against our sin. And so secondly, Abigail does something else to, uh, uh, to alleviate this, this situation or to mediate this situation. Abigail humbles and humiliates herself to atone for Nabal's foolishness. And we read that in verse Chapter 25, verse 23 through 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men, my Lord, of my Lord, whom you sent. So she's basically saying, look, it's my fault. I know my husband's a fool. Um, and I wasn't there. If I would have been there, like this wouldn't have happened. And so she says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Like, this is my fault. But she's innocent. In fact, she's not only is she innocent, she's wise and discerning. She did nothing to deserve um, having to be humiliated, but she's going humi- to bear the shame for Nabal's actions. She's going to take the shame off of David too, right? This is all my fault. Like, put this on me. And so, and I thought, okay, here's where kind of that comparison between Abigail and Christ kind of breaks down, but no, it doesn't, like, it's because it's almost like we're saying like somehow God was responsible for sin coming into the world or Adam's sin or our sin. 
And, but he isn't. He's innocent. But it's as if he's saying, it's my fault. I'm going to take the blame. And so for everyone who's put their faith in Christ, it's because Christ has said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. That's it. That's the only way um, that we can be forgiven. Isaiah 53 says, Isaiah says in chapter 53, um, verse 4 through 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like God put that on his son. His son that was obedient even to the point of death. He put it on Jesus instead of on us. And so that's why at the cross we see God's justice and God's grace like meet at the cross, right? It's why it's the most important event in the history of the world because God gets justice against sin and we get grace, we get what we don't deserve, right? We get reconciled to God. We get a relationship with God um, that we don't deserve because somebody took our shame somebody took our guilt Romans chapter 5 verse 18 through 19 therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so the act so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous right so Nabal was a fool, but Abigail, uh, she, she atoned for it. And Adam was a fool that brought sin and death on all of us, but Christ has atoned for our sin by being punished for our sins in our place. And so the third thing that Abigail does is she intercedes on behalf of her house and, for, and David's righteousness. She starts making arguments. She starts pleading with David. And we read that in verse 26 through 31. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the Lord's ba- the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And what my Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. My Lord shall have no cause or grief of pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And the Lord has dealt well with my Lord. Then remember your servant. And so she's, she's arguing. She's arguing the case for her people. She's uh, interceding on their behalf. 
And she actually says a couple of things that are really profound, one of which is um, in verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Which she actually says before God tells David that eventually, because God wants to build, or David wants to build God a house. And he's like, I will make you into a house, right? Um, and so a sure house that will always have a king sit, sitting on the throne, right? The promise of the, the coming Messiah that would come through David's line. And so Abigail actually brings this up before God has, God has that conversation with David when David wants to build him a temple. And so I thought it was interesting, too, that um, in verse 29, um, it's obvious, obviously, it doesn't sound like Nabal's heard much about David, but Abigail knows because she references something that he did in verse 29. And it says, as the lives of your enemies, uh, well, here, and as the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from a hollow, as from the hollow of a sling. And so just like David slung the stone out of his sling to kill Goliath, he's saying, you know, if you don't, don't do this, David, uh, just continue to be steadfast and faithful and patient and wait for the Lord's salvation, and he will sling all of your enemies out of, out of your sling. And so she obviously knows what David has done. And so, so how does Christ intercede on our behalf? Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And so not only has Christ been obedient unto death and um, offered all of his good works to turn aside God's wrath, on our behalf, and not only has he atoned for our sins by his sacrificial death, he also lives to this day interceding on our behalf, right? And so, and we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 26, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds, this is talking about Christ, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so we have a great high priest, right, who lives forever, who makes intercession on our behalf. And so... And, and so I to told that story about my dad. Uh, that did considerable damage in my life to the point where I was expelled from school twice my junior year, sent to this school with, um, for bad kids um, my senior year. And it was in that place where um, going to church with some friends, um, I, came, I came to Christ. Like, God saved me. I was a new creation too, born again, a uh, new creation in Christ, and God did an awesome work. Like I was, a, yeah, I was a new creation. Like God gave me a hunger for his word, and I was going to church like five times a week. And, um, and I told some in Sunday school, and I'll share it here real quick, but 
I had been seeing my wife now uh, before, but we had broken up, um, hadn't been together for a little while. Um, and then about a month after being a Christian, I got a phone call from her telling me that she was pregnant. And, and it was at that point that we both cried and thought, okay, our lives are over. And, um, and we ended up, we weren't even really on good terms at that time, but just started going to church all the time and just praying that God would do a work in our hearts. And over time, he helped us to grow in love for him and love for each other and mature us. And we ended up having our son in August 6th, or August 15th of 1996. We got married on August 31st of 1996. Been married for 26 years now um, by the grace of God. And, um, but, so, and I just shared that part of my story because at that point God did reconcile me to himself, right? But things between me and my dad were still not, not great because of that, I think, that wound. And I'll share more about that here, um, but I got to keep moving. So, so we need Christ to be our propitiation and our atonement and our intercessor because, because we have offended a holy God, right? He is the one that can that has offered those gifts to turn aside God's wrath and paid the penalty of our sin and who intercedes on our behalf. And so, yeah, it's a representative system, right? Like, that's the system that God's drawn up. We're, we're either under Adam or we're under Christ. Basically, 1 Samuel 25 is Romans 5, you know? And that's the, the point that I'm making here is that we need Christ's work to be saved from because we've offended somebody so much greater than David. And so that leads me to the, my next point. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's, it's his work. 1 Samuel 25, 32 through 35. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come to meet me, truly by morning there would have been left, there would have not been left to enable so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And so by Abigail acting in this mediating way between Abig or Nabal's folly and the consequence of that, she's turned aside David from blood guilt. Like the very thing that David had been resisting for so long to do to Saul, he was going to do to Nabal. He was going to sin. And so she actually keeps David from sinning uh, by stepping in and and he sees that, like, yeah, I was totally, I was going to defend my honor with my own hand. I was going to save face by killing this fool that uh, made me look bad, right? Um, and so, but the thing is, and so for now, David, David is still, he's innocent, right? He's a man after God's own heart. But eventually, he's going to fall this exact same way, right? He's going to. He's going to take into his hand something that doesn't belong to him, right? But at this point in the story, somebody stepped in and kept him from doing that. And so, and 
And uh, I just want to read John 14, 1 through 6. I'm trying to think that doesn't seem right. Um, no, I'm actually going to read Acts, Acts 4, 11 through 12. This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the built by you, the builders, which has become this cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one way, right? Peter, Peter I think this is his sermon um, on the day of Pentecost, right? He's telling them that, that Christ is the only way um, to be saved from the wrath of God, from having offended somebody so much greater than David. And he's telling that to his fellow Israelites there on the day of Pentecost. Um, and so I might just read John 14, 1 through 6. He says, and John, the apostle John says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way that we're, to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because he's the only one that could, could turn aside God's wrath by giving the gift of his life, by atoning for our sins, dying in our place, and interceding on our behalf. He is the way. Um, and that's why he tells them, like, you know the way, guys. Like, not only has he gone to prepare a place for us, his works have prepared our way to get there. Um, and so, um, so then finally, um, it became aware to me when I was about 30 years old that I still had this offense against my father and that... Um, and how much that had hurt me, and I thought, like, I was going to go, and that was through a church, a church function that we had where people were fasting and praying and sharing, and they would come together and share testimonies about things that God had done in their life, and it was like, it was sitting in one of these meetings that I shared that story, and I realized how much it had hurt me, and then how that, that incident had hurt me, and how much it had set my life on a, a certain course, and I ended up, um, going to my dad and talking to him because we never, t like the day I got home, we never talked about it. We never talked about it that day. We never talked about it ever. And, um, and so I went to him thinking, you know, my dad would be apologetic or something. But what I realized was I like, I can't control, like, if he asked me to forgive him, I can't, I have no control over that. Like, what I had to do was I apologized for not being the son that God had called me to be. Like, because my charge was to honor my father and mother, right? Like, I can't. And so basically it was a failure of Ephesians 6, right? You know, where my father, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So that's his side of it. You know, my side of him is to honor him regardless of how well he does that. And so, and so, yeah. Um, and so that really changed a lot of things in my relationship with him. And that was the way that God... I guess, reconciled me to him and was mediating between me and my father in that relationship. And so lastly, um, and I know I'm, I'm running short on time here, but um, 
The last thing is vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's the last point. Because we see at the end of the story, like Nabal is completely unrepentant. In verse 36, it says, And Nabal came, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. And she told him nothing at all until the next morning. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And, it, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And when David heard that Nabal had, was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. And the Lord has returned evil on Nabal on his own head. And David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And so... Nabal could have honored David for the king that he was. Instead, he foolishly disgraced him. And instead, Nabal treated himself like a king. He was having a feast like a king, and he was drunk when Abigail comes back. And I just thought, how, how we disgrace God when we make ourselves the king of our own lives. And that's what Nabal had done. He, he didn't recognized David as the anointed king that he was and give him a place of honor at his table. He treated himself that way. And so God takes vengeance on Nabal instead of David doing it himself. And John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So everyone else in this story is saved through the, through the propitiation and atoning uh, intercession of Abigail, but Nabal persists in wrongdoing and he dies. And so that just, that's a sobering reality. But if we persist in sin and unbelief in the finished work of Jesus, we will perish like Nabal did. And so we have to, we have to learn from his foolishness and, and turn to Christ because he's the only one that can uh, turn away God's wrath and atone for our sin and intercede on our behalf. We can't do that ourselves. And so, so just kind of recapping as I close here, we've brought shame on God, on a holy God through our sin, and unless we repent, we will die for our treason. And we need Christ to be, we need Christ to be that, the propitiating gift, uh, and to bear our sin because it's either him or us. And he lives forever to intercede on our behalf. So put your faith in Christ and his finished work, no one can save themselves by their own hands or good works. Like, we can't do that. It's only him. And so, and if we persist in unbelief, like I said before, in the unfinished, in the finished work of Jesus, we will perish like Nabal did. So I would implore you, as we celebrate the coming of Christ, don't, like, put your faith in him. He's the one that God has sent uh, to save us from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that because of 
because we've offended someone so much greater than ourselves. And so put your faith in Christ this Christmas season. Don't, don't let it go another day. Don't let it go another year. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great mercy. Lord, that you haven't treated us as we deserved. Lord, because you have, you put your own son to shame in our place, Lord. And that's incomprehensible because we know that he did nothing to deserve the punishment that he endured, the shame that he endured, the ridicule, the mockery, the, the abuse. And yet, Lord, you caused him to suffer that in our place because of your great love. And also, Lord, because of your great justice, Lord, because you cannot let sin go unpunished. Lord, you are just and you are good. And Father, we, we just stand in awe of you and, and, and your plan, Lord, to, to save us and to, to bring glory to your name through your Son. And Lord, we just give you all the thanks and all the praise and all, all the glory because salvation belongs to you. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.